This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Global virus cases now topping 104.5 million deaths, surpassing 2.2 million. We've had um, more than 108 million COVID shots given around the globe. So let's get into our virus guest. Uh, Great to have joining us once again, Dr. William Moss. He is executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center, professor in the departments of epidemiology, international health and molecular microbiology and immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health which, as you know, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Moss, uh, back with us on the phone from Baltimore. Bill, nice to have you here once again on Bloomberg. So I got to say, I'm starting to feel optimistic because I know people um, in my world that are getting the vaccine. It looks like the flow is opening up. Tell me how you're seeing it. What are you seeing in terms of COVID cases and then the vaccine getting out to people? Yes, thanks, Carolyn. It's my pleasure to be back with you. Um, So we are seeing some positive signs. It doesn't mean we can let our our guard down, um, particularly with a Super Bowl coming, and and we don't want another super-spreading event. But we are seeing case numbers come down in the United States. Yesterday, 119,000 cases. That's down from about 250,000 cases in early January. So we're really down on cases. Um, We are still seeing tragically high numbers of deaths. The death numbers uh, always kind of lag the case numbers by a couple weeks. We're still at about 3,800 deaths yesterday. So that's that's obviously still uh, tragically high. Our test positivity around 8% still much higher than uh, we'd like it, but we are seeing the case com- uh, the case numbers come down. And as you pointed out, we're getting more vaccines out, over 55 million doses distributed. Um, we've gotten uh, over 34 million doses into arms. That's about 60% of those distributed. Uh, we're doing much better in, in getting vaccines uh, doses into people. And I think this combination of, you know, the case numbers come down, if that we continue that trend and in, continue to do better and better in getting uh, people vaccinated, we may be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But again, that's not going to be for a couple more months. People still need to practice their good public health measures. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear you rattle off these statistics because it, it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean we're in a worse place than than we've been than we were in uh, a, a few months ago but a much better place than we were in a few weeks ago so i guess context is is everything um i i do wonder about the new strain bill because yeah. these this decline in numbers that we're seeing is also coming at a time where in recent weeks we've heard about the discovery of new and potentially more transmittable strains you're exactly right tim and you know uh, the this the surge that we saw probably you know in, in throughout January was probably related to the holidays and holiday gatherings, and so we're seeing uh, that fall off. Um, but you're exactly right; these uh, these new variants uh, of the virus that are more transmissible and particularly of concern. There's some suggestion that perhaps they may cause more severe disease, 
and and may be uh, able to escape some of the protective immunity conferred by our vaccines. Not completely, and and we think these vaccines are still going to be really good about preventing severe disease, hospitalizations, and death. Um, but but we need to be on guard, um, and we need to be ready for. Um, increasing uh, circulation in our communities of these more transmissible uh, virus variants. Um, so that is something we're going to have to watch very carefully. And that's what we're worried about, that these variants being more contagious, right, and, and, and circulating, as you said, more easily and more quickly, that even though we're vaccinating, if we don't have enough of our population vaccinated, that can create a whole other wave. Yes, you're right, and it's it's why it's so urgent right now. Um, before these uh, these variants, these more transmissible variants become the dominant uh, viruses circulating in our communities, that we do everything we can to decrease uh, the transmission of this virus, and that includes as quickly as possible getting more people vaccinated, and really doubling down on our public health measures to prevent transmission. The more this virus transmits, the more it's going to mutate uh, and create further problems for us. So we, I think we have a short window of time right now mm-hmm. to really try to clamp this down. What's the best way to increase vaccine distribution? Because at the current rate we're, we're going right now, which is about 1.34 million vaccines each day, um, it will take months to reach 75% immunity in this country. Right. There are a number of steps that can be taken, and I think the the Biden administration is working on this. I think of it uh, in in kind of the four Ds, uh, doses, delivery, demand, and data. And so we certainly need to increase the number of doses. There uh, There are limitations on how many vaccines can be manufactured, but there are efforts to increase the number of doses Uh, purchase more doses for the U.S. population, and also bring on, hopefully in the next few weeks, um, you know, maybe new vaccines, such as the the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're waiting uh, for the results of their uh, phase three trial. We need to improve our delivery. That's increasing the number of vaccinators, increasing the number of sites where vaccines are being delivered. We're already seeing a lot of progress on that front. And then on the demand side, we need to make sure that we target our public health messaging to those communities that have mistrust or are skeptical of the vaccine mm-hmm. and, and, and build that trust. Dr. Moss, um, one thing I wanted to follow up on, you said something about having a short window to get the vaccines out before these virus mutations really pick up a lot of momentum. How short is that window? Yes, Carol. You know, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, predicted that the, the, the variant that we know scientifically as B117 uh, that was first identified in the United Kingdom would become the dominant uh, uh, virus variant in the United States in, in, in March, in mid-March. So, I, you know, I would say we really need to decrease our trans- the transmission in this country you know, over the next uh, four to eight weeks. And and that's going to include getting, uh, really increasing the number of people vaccinated, as well as continuing our our basic public health measures. There was a really interesting uh, story by the Associated Press that came out this morning, Bill, that talked about the need to vaccinate around the world and not just focus on country by country. The International Federation of the Red Cross uh, and Red Crescent Societies, they, they found that the 50 poorest countries have received only one-tenth of 1% one 
of total vaccine doses that have been administered worldwide so far. Here's why that matters, though, because that inequality, according to them, could potentially backfire to a deadly and devastating effect because areas of the globe that remain unvaccinated could allow the virus to spread and mutate. So even if somebody is vaccinated against a strain that could be developed in another country, right? Yes, this is a really important uh, point, Tim. And, you know, obviously the the pandemic has been uh, particularly tragic in the United States, and the United States certainly has the highest case numbers and deaths. But we also need to be looking globally and, and ensuring equitable access to vaccines around the world. That's really hard right now when, when vaccine supply is scarce. Um, but there are efforts uh, led by the World Health Organization um, to procure vaccines uh, through a number of mechanisms and from a, a number of vaccine manufacturers and be able to ultimately provide enough doses to 20% of the population uh, in all, all uh, countries around the world, and particularly they're focused, obviously, on the low- and middle-income countries. But you're right. This is a global pandemic, and unless we have a global effort, we're not going to stop it. And this virus has shown us that it can mutate more quickly than I think many experts uh, anticipated. Mm. And if there's ongoing transmission in parts of the world, everyone's impacted by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is, you know, in terms of the headlines that you're focusing on right now, what are they? Yes, I, I think the big one is is the concern around uh, the new variants uh, that are both more transmissible and potentially um, uh, we have vaccines that are less effective. Mm. Um, we've seen, for example, in the trials of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and Novavax vaccine, um, that they do have reduced uh, efficacy uh, against the variant that was first identified in South Africa. Um, fortunately, they still seem to pr uh, protect against severe disease, and right. that should be our number one goal. We want to stop hospitalizations and stop deaths. And that was something that came up in the conversation we had with Jane Jane's uh, chief scientific officer just about one week ago. Hey, Bill, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Dr. William Moss, he is professor of epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, as you know, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, Bill also the executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center, joining us once again on the phone from Baltimore. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Let's not forget, there's a lot going on. We just heard from President Biden uh, giving his first foreign policy speech. Uh, we cannot forget, though, kind of on the other end of the spectrum is we've got the Super Bowl. 55 is happening this weekend. Uh, we're typically there at Radio Row, outside of it, talking to all members of the sports community about the big game. It's a different world. It's a COVID world. Yeah, it's not just different for us and for the players and the viewers, but of course, different for the fans who will or will not be in attendance. Right, exactly. It's going to be much limited and socially distanced. Um, but for most of us, we also will, of course, watch the, the big game from at home. But one of the things that's always there, uh, no matter what year it is, is security concerns around the big game and keeping everybody connected. So great to have back with us William Bratton. He's former New York City and Boston Police Commissioner former chief of the LA Police Department, chairman of Risk Advisory over at Teneo. Commissioner Bratton is on the phone in New York. Also with us is Andreas Orlando. He 
is president of the public sector and uh, Verizon Connect over at Verizon. He's also a senior VP there, which is investing millions in expanding permanent 5G deployments in and around the Tampa area, around the big game. He joins us on the phone in Atlanta. Gentlemen, so nice to have you here with us. Commissioner Bratton, I want to start with you. And we are going to talk about security around the big game. We've got a nice chunk of time here. I do have to ask you, though, about... President Biden, a new administration, when we are talking about foreign policy, we're hearing about a lot of things. When you look at the security and national security of the United States, how do you see it and what do you see as our biggest concerns right now? Is it domestic terrorism? Uh, my belief is it is domestic terrorism at the moment. They'll always be concerned with international terrorism. But this year, uh, I think that has been affected by uh, particularly after January 6th, uh, the issue of domestic terrorism is first and foremost. International terrorism, interestingly enough, has been relatively quiet as it relates to efforts uh, directed against the United States for a significant number of months now. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why domestic terrorism is attracting so much attention, because what had been concerned since 9-11 has, in fact, been diminished significantly. Commissioner Bratton, how, how do we get that under control in the United States? It's going to be much, much more difficult. That uh, I took over the LAPD in 2002, and at that time, one of the uh, first priorities for me was getting the LAPD up and running to deal with the new threat of international terrorism. Uh, local police forces had very little to do with terrorism concerns prior to 9-11. That was largely responsible for the government. After 9-11, we had to focus on it and have focused on it for the ensuing now almost 20 years. But the issue uh, uh, now is, first and foremost, domestic terrorism. And that's going to be much more difficult because we very limited in terms of the laws we have, that the laws passed after 9-11 allow us to more effectively deal with foreign terrorism initiatives. Here in the United States, uh, we don't have a lot of those laws that work so well for us. So I do want to talk. Um, the issue of, oh, go please finish. Go ahead, please. No, 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 please finish. Uh, they also had the additional issue in the United States: guns. That yeah. uh, we have more guns than people. In the last month, two million guns have been sold in the United States. Wow! I think that's the highest month ever. And so, terrorists would have to basically try and bring guns into. They've already hit that uh, four hundred million guns. And uh, people in many states are allowed to carry them openly. Seen in a number of states, Wisconsin, Michigan, they have open carry laws. And people are armed with uh, all types of weapons of war. They're allowed to mark them out with. So we have a very uh, different situation. It's going to be very difficult to get under control. And right now, it is not under yeah, that's a, 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 a such a bigger issue. We're going to come back to some more serious topics, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about the game. I think for me, I kind of was like, oh my God, the social <laughs> it's the Super Bowl this weekend because it just kind of crept up on us in, in this virtual, socially distanced world. It's just such a different year. Um, Andreas, come on in on it. And uh, we were talking with uh, your team members at Verizon last year this time uh, in Florida. We were there. Uh, at the game. Tell us about Verizon and their involvement and making sure that everyone who's in and around the game stays connected and, and make sure that everybody is safe and secure. Yeah, it's, um, I'm 
and glad to hear you talk to our, our team last year. We have been doing this now side-by-side uh, side with first responders for uh, decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Super Bowl, every major event like this, we are uh, our teams uh, roll out and have a presence with first responders to ensure that uh, they and the communities that they serve are safe during uh, a big event like the Super Bowl. And this year is, is no different. Uh, the same uh, playbook that we had last year, obviously we updated and we have to account for COVID and some of the unique uh, uh, aspects of this year's event. But we have, again, our um, Verizon Command Center, uh, which is uh, something we do every year on the ground. We have over 100 engineers and technicians who are monitoring and managing the network um, around the clock, in and around the, the actual stadium, Raymond James, where the teams will be playing, but also in the greater Tampa area. And this is an incredible source of pride for our company uh, to ensure that the event goes off with, with without a hitch. We... Um, we're also on site in the Florida State Joint Emergency Operations Center. Uh, this is where all of the uh, law enforcement and public safety agencies, including, of course, the Tampa Police Department, have a presence um, and are communicating and uh, collaborating real time. And we have a team on the ground as part of that to ensure that we're doing everything we can to help first responders and public safety agencies make this uh, event as safe as it possibly can. And as I said, you know, COVID changes some of the dynamic um, of the game and, uh, and of the situation, but our commitment uh, as America's number one network for public safety remains the same. It's twofold. One, uh, we're working overtime to ensure that first responders stay connected when it matters most, um, and whether that's on our 4G LTE network, America's most reliable, or on our 5G network, uh, the world's fastest and most advanced. And two, um, we are working with uh, first responders in the public safety community to make sure they have the most advanced solutions and technologies they need uh, to keep the community and themselves uh, uh, safe in, you know, what is generally a generally a pretty safe event, but um, a lot goes into making it that way, and obviously there's always... Uh, there's always risks for things to happen. Well, and, you know, Commissioner Pratt, come on, come on back in on this conversation, because what's different about this securities, you know, this year's security plans around the big game versus what we've seen in years past when it's a much more, quote unquote, normal year? Double things. Uh, first off, there's uh, significant focus on COVID this year. large part of the public safety focus on the idea of uh, trying to the best of their ability um, encourage the social distancing, wearing of masks, uh, to do that as minimal, uh, if you will, uh, use of police resources for that other than encouraging that they be worn and the social distancing. But uh, the security issue this year is uh, multifaceted because of COVID. Good news is that I was just speaking to the chief of the Tampa Police Department this morning coordinating the over 70 agencies that will be involved in the public safety effort down there. And uh, they believe at this juncture that uh, there is no direct threat, either international terrorism or domestic terrorism, directed against the event. Uh, That's good news. And they will watch that very closely in the run-up to the event. But after the events of January 6th, there were concerns with the demonstrations uh, in Tampa around the issues 
that were uh, in the forefront of the January 6th uh, event, and there is no evidence that that's going to uh, happen down there. That's the good news. Well, how, how has the role of, of law enforcement changed in the wake of what we saw on, on January 6th? How has the thinking around law enforcement changed now getting that clear indication that this is such an issue in this country? Well, it is the point I was making earlier that uh, they're here, that uh, they don't have to try to get into the country illegally. They don't have to create a cell. Uh, they're already here, and uh, they are heavily armed. They are incredibly well-trained. I'm talking about the, the far-right militants, that the, some of these militias and probably types that uh, are out there. And that is of concern. And we are also very limited in our ability to monitor some of their activities because, again, this is domestic terrorism rather than international terrorism. So that's a significant limitation. And the technology of today, we've been talking about technology, and thankfully Verizon's bringing the latest technology that there is to this event. But a lot of the technology is now capable of being encrypted. So that significantly mitigates law enforcement's ability to monitor and keep control over uh, what's going on here. But right now, uh, as of this morning, talking to the chief and then you know, the sources I deal with in the uh, policing world, that uh, there is no indication of uh, direct threats against the event. It's a very different event, certainly, than what was going on in Washington on January 6th, which was political. This is celebratory sports. And uh, uh, I think we're going to have a very safe event, a very happy event. And uh, I know which uh, team I'll be rooting for. Who is it? Uh, <laughs> born in Boston, you inoculated. All right. So, you yeah. sound like our producer, <laughs> Paul Brennan. <laughs> you you, yeah. you can, so you can take Tom Brady out of Boston, right? What? Well, again, uh, New York, uh, uh, L.A., uh, I always had a move for not the hometown team, but my hometown of Boston. <laughs> so same, 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 same thing this year. <laughs> Andreas, come back in here, um, because I, in terms of the way the network is is working at the game, I'm, I'm wondering how you and Verizon think about prioritizing certain services at a game like this. For example, making sure fans can access Instagram uh, or communicate with one another, or communicate with people back home versus police and first responders being able to communicate with one another. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's something that um, is relevant to an event like the Super Bowl, but it's something that we think about in the operation of our network every single day. So uh, obviously, um, for an event like the Super Bowl, we uh, reinforce the network. Uh, we add a lot of capacity and bandwidth so that uh, uh, our customers um, will all be able to use the network in the ways that they uh, would like. Of course, uh, with 5G, where we've made a significant investment, there's even greater uh, bandwidth and speed and, and characteristics of the network that will help customers. In Tampa alone, uh, in anticipation of this event, we've uh, invested over $80 million um, in 5G. Uh, Tampa is one of 64 uh, cities across the country now that have our 5G services. And so there will be plenty of bandwidth and capacity on the network uh, to manage the demand. Now, obviously with first responders and public safety, they have the highest level of priority on our network and we've built into our network, not just for the Super Bowl, uh, but for every day and for every part of the country uh, where first responders have 
access to uh, voice uh, priority and data priority. Uh, and then if and when our network becomes congested ever, uh, they also have preemption um, uh, where we uh, put first responders and uh, the public safety community above everyone else uh, to get access to that network if, if, uh, if that's necessary. It's, it's not often necessary given how robustly we build our networks, but yes, first responders and, and the public safety community have the highest level of access on our network every day, but that will be true at the Super Bowl as well. So, and have you, Andreas, in terms of working from home, have you, I mean, is this something that all of a sudden we've kind of had to learn even more about kind of managing bandwidth? I mean, have you guys learned a lot with everybody working at home and tapping into networks? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we have, uh, and I think we've talked quite publicly about this in some of our earnings uh, calls and other settings, but early on in the pandemic, we saw a massive increase in use of our of our network. Um, uh, lots of uh, video, um, as you can imagine, uh, gaming uh, really took off. <laughs> and while we maintained our uh, our um, capacity and our usage to capacity, which is a really important metric that we uh, watch in our networks in a constant throughout that period. Um, it's, it's clear that people working from home, the pandemic has changed the way. In my space, I, I have the, I run the public sector part of our business. We've right. seen governments work differently. We've seen people work from home. Uh, we've seen uses of the network that didn't exist before, and it's been it's been very instructive. And and candidly, it's very timely for the nationwide rollout of 5G, uh, because the character, the unique characteristics of 5G really are revolutionary. They're not incremental to 4G. The, the, the speeds that we've never right. seen before, the latency characteristics, these are all going to make the kinds of use cases that the pandemic has highlighted, it's gonna, they're going to make them even more possible. Uh, so it's a good time uh, technologically uh, for the changes that we're seeing in usage patterns. Commissioner Bratton, I wanted to, to shift gears a little bit and, and, and talk with you about your thoughts around defunding the police. It's something that we heard a lot about over the summer in the wake of the death of George Floyd. And I think there's a lot of questions around what people mean when they say defund the police. But the Brookings Institution says it means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department in order to fund other government agencies funded by the local municipality. Um, what are your thoughts when you hear defund the police? Well, I think the issue is that term uh, was really taken out of context in terms of how it was initially presented, the idea of taking money, resources away from the police and putting them someplace else at a time when actually there's an increased need for police services. Police leaders are not opposed to the idea of defunding, if it is for purposes of reallocation of resources, to take some responsibilities away from the police that are better situated elsewhere, particularly dealing with mental health issues, dealing with a myriad of issues that could be handled by other city agencies more appropriately. But oftentimes, you would need to collaborate with the police, that there are very few things that the police deal with that can be handled exclusively by another agency. This is where the importance of technology, such as what Verizon provides, is so important that this this need to uh, have collaborative interoperability. So that if money is given over to uh, a city agency to improve their mental health resources and ability to respond 
to mental health calls along with the police, they're going to need to have to be able to talk with the police. And they're going to need to be able to have radio systems and data systems and video systems that allow them to have seamless interoperability. And what Verizon has been doing, it's so exciting, right. is that over these last 20 years, they've been able to pull that off. And so going forward, uh, there will be efforts to take resources away from the police and put them more appropriately elsewhere. Yeah. The term defunding, however, is taken on a negative context. Right. The idea some places talking about taking police and reducing the size of the police force, et cetera. But All right. the term that uh, needs to be thought through a lot more. Got it. Bill, we've got to jump in because we're running out of time here. Um, both of you, thank you so much. Bill Bratton, Chairman of Risk Advisory over at Teneo uh, Risk, and of course, uh, Andreas Orlando over at uh, Verizon. He's President of Public Sector, of course, looking ahead to security uh, ahead of the big game. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading day. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Sean Cruz, Senior Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. Back with us on the phone from Chicago. Sean, good to have you here with us. How are you? Is Sean there? Uh, we might be having some technical problems, so uh, we're hopefully going to get that line connected up so we can bring in Sean. You know, in you just said a it moment. was Thursday. Sometimes the gremlins <laughs> come out. On they Thursdays. hit us at the top of the show, didn't and, they? Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> Did I hear Sean there? Sean, are you there? Yep. Ah, uh, welcome, welcome. Hey, nice to have you back with us. Um, before we get into kind of your thoughts on the market and the trade, what do you make? You guys are also a zero commission trading platform. What do you make of what was has been going on with these meme stocks, GameStop, and the like? I mean, it certainly is going to drive a lot of interest, and there's those names are going to be volatile as you start to see the trade get um, one-sided. And what you can attribute that to would be it um, interest from from uh, chat rooms on social media or hedge funds short interest, whatever it might be. I mean, those names are going to be a little bit more volatile. So we just try and tell our clients to make sure they understand the risk of what they're they're getting into when they do decide to enter into these trades. Did you see a lot of trading activity on your platform as well? We saw it, we saw um, some elevated trading activity last week, and it's typical of what we see um, just in general in markets when you start to see volatility uh, move higher, whether it be just the overall VIX in and of itself or whether you see specific names start to, to show elevated volatility, it does drive a lot of client interest. And it's not just on the, the equity trading front, but also on the derivative trading front as well. Are you at all concerned about the type of interest that it drives? As long as, as we, we feel comfortable with you know, the, the overall risk of what's going on and, and we feel that you know, the clients are, are able to, to handle advantage that risk, um, you know, that's something that we keep an eye on and we certainly want to enable clients to trade whatever it is that they want to trade. But we do uh, monitor these names and, and, you know, anything, pretty much anything else across our book our, our clients are trading. We do monitor that on a, a, an ongoing basis and that's continuous throughout the day. Right. Did you guys have to shut any trading down because of these? I'm just curious. 
Um, last week, you didn't, you didn't shut down uh, trading. If clients wanted to come in and, and buy or sell um, these names, they certainly could. We did um, increase margin requirements, and we also limited what, was, what clients were able to do on the derivative trading fronts. For instance, we, we weren't allowing um, just selling naked calls, for instance, in, in some of these um, highly volatile names, and that's just because of the inherent risk that can come if you are just short a call in, in the stock makes a, a, what happened in some cases last week, a seven sigma move. And we also uh, put a, a few controls on what we were allowed in, in terms of uh, spread trading as well. Hmm. Uh, Sean, I want to get your thoughts on, on earnings that we saw this week, Alphabet and Amazon, and, and wondering if that changes at strong earnings, of course. I mean, for, for Amazon, it was its first year that we saw a billion dollars a day. Revenue exceeded that for the company. Um, and then Alphabet also topping ex- expectations from, from analysts. What are the signs that this gives you about the economy and the recovery that we're seeing? I think it was interesting in Amazon's uh, release. Well, one, there was, I think, a lot of what was in that release fell in the shadow yeah. of Jeff Bezos, <laughs> that is the executive true. chairman. But it was an incredibly strong report. And I think there was a few interesting things to take away. One, the head of Amazon Web Services stepping up in that CEO role, I think, gives a little bit of an indication of what the business is going to focus on moving forward. Um, the other thing, though, was on the retail front, they actually said even as we move into the recovery this year, they still expect demand for e-commerce to remain strong. And I think that was something a lot of investors were asking themselves, not just about Amazon, but a lot of these names that thrived over the past year and, and had some pretty strong um, upside move and, and some great returns, was whether or not that was all pull forward and then there's not going to be as strong growth or the business is, is going to maybe fall off a little bit um, as we get into this more reopened return to some sort of normalcy, whatever that ends up looking like, what that would really mean for the businesses. And, and I think they're able to reassure uh, investors that they are still expecting demand to remain strong. And we saw that not only maybe help sentiment around Amazon itself, but names like Shopify, names like eBay also benefited from that because they didn't just say it was going to be Amazon in specific. They said there's an overall general trend. They expect e-commerce to remain strong this year. Hey, I'm curious. We talked a little bit about the VIX yesterday. Uh, it's definitely come down uh, from the recent spike that we just saw, um, certainly last week amid the volatility. How closely do you watch the VIX uh, as an indicator? And if so, what is it telling you right now? So the VIX, I kind of view it in, in sort of three three buckets. And so when in the 20 to 25 bucket, that means there's some cautious optimism out there, and, and that's where we're at right now. 25 to 30 is genuine uncertainty. Anytime you get north of 30, that is, there is, is a caution tone. It's really setting in across the market. And I think last week, when you had a lot of this volatility being driven in, in a handful of names, the question for markets wasn't, is, is GameStop doing something going to really cause this, this issue in GameStop itself? The question the markets weren't sure was, would this turn into a systemic issue? And I think that's what drove it higher. As we get further away and we realize that we are returning some sense of normalcy, this isn't going to become a systemic issue across the board for equities, that, that's what allowed the volatility index to really pull back as much as it did. I expected as we got further away from last week that we would see the index moving lower, but I did not expect to see it down at 22. But I think that just shows that the market is moving away from 
focusing on what we saw last week, and they're returning to focusing on things that matter. Economic uh, reports are coming out. We're getting uh, continue to get a lot of earnings reports out, and those are, are coming in um, as 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 expected, in, in many cases, better. And I think that's really is what the market's focused on, and, and they're right. becoming more optimistic. Sean, 20, in 20 seconds, tomorrow's jobs report, um, what are you expecting looking for? 20 seconds. Uh, I actually think we're going to see a, a little bit of a pullback in wage growth, and that's because in the ADP mm. report, we saw that services jobs, the leisure and hospitality, had a pretty strong rebound, which is good overall, but that will sort of drag that average wage number down because those tend to be lower-paying jobs. So that's, I'm going to be interested to see what happens with the wage growth number. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Sean, thank you so much. Sean Cruz, Senior Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, with us from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.